Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The race is on and testing is back. Just three days of pre-season testing remain before the 10 Formula 1 teams jet off to Melbourne for the season opening Australian Grand Prix. And although last week's first test gave us a first look at how things might shake out, we are going to know a lot more by the end of the week. There are many more questions to answer, not least the listener questions we're going to field in this podcast. I'm Ed Straw and joining me to look ahead to the second test are Scott Mitchell and Gary Anderson. So Scott, you pleased to be back in Granier's just a few days after leaving? Yeah, nothing pleases me more than heading back to to what looks like an industrial state outside of uh, the the fun bits of, of Barcelona, especially in in February when it's uh, it's it's a bit warmer than it is back home, but it's still not warm enough to to count as a holiday. But I am very very pleased to be here because first week of testing is always good fun because you get to see the cars and sort of start to see what people are really working with. Second week is when a lot of the nonsense stops and we start to see even more of a representative picture with, with race runs and, and qualifying simulations. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'm ready to get going. Yeah, it has, uh, it's got a bit cooler today. I stayed out, so I've, I've been down in Badalona for a few days. Uh, Barcelona, it's pronounced Barcelona. No, Badalona, just, just, it's sort of next to Barcelona, a nice little uh, coastal town, very uh, very uh, pleasant time. Also joined by uh, by Gary Anderson, who uh, recently picked up from the airport, so he's, uh, he's jetted back in. It is getting serious now, isn't it? It is getting serious, yeah. I mean, all the teams will have gone back. Um, there's data, you know, millions and millions of whatever of data, and they'll be going through all that stuff to see if they can find that little bit that you know, shows them where the car should go, the developments. So all that stuff will be put together on the setup to try and make it optimise it a little bit. We saw some race runs from some teams, so they'll be looking at that and looking at tyre degradation, seeing if they can change the setup a little bit to maybe reduce that. You know, an extra lap or two on a race run, on a, on a stint, is uh, is is vitally important. So they'll be looking to try to optimise that. 
And this is the last three days now coming up before the first race. Now, you know, a lot of people say, oh, it doesn't really matter. It's the first race that counts. But yes, I don't disagree. However, you just want to go to Melbourne. We know the weather there can be, you know, you can have all four seasons in one day. So you never know what's going to throw at you. You want to go to, to Melbourne, making sure you're armed with your best um, equipment to put on it at a short notice and make sure you get the lap times in when, you know, it might never be dry till qualifying. You never know. Um, so you need to make sure you've got your handle on everything and, and uh, you're ready to do it. So I think this week will be very interesting. Yeah, well, testing does matter because it's what sets you up for the coming season. You've got to be ready for Australia. Well, we've we've asked for some listeners to to pose their questions related to testing at the second test. So we'll work through, uh, through some of those. Sarah Jones asks, what would be the most important areas for the teams to focus on in the second week of testing and why? One for you, Gary. Well, it's really knowing that the car is capable of using the softer tyre um, and without sort of the balance of the car changing too much, so you lose the advantage of that softer tyre. Because as we know, Formula 1, it's, it is about qualifying. You have to qualify the best you can. When there's only one car going to sit in pole position, but that's the same all the way through the grid. You know, the further up you can get, the easier the race becomes. If you're involved in that mid-pack of the first first lap, there's a chance you're not going to come around at the end of it. So... You want to make sure you know the car will work well on the softer tyre, so I think we will see some simulation runs. I don't think they'll be on the sniff of an oily rag. I think they'll still be you know, 20, maybe even 30 kilograms on some of the cars to just to camouflage at that fraction. But at the end of the day, you know, everything you can do to know your car better by the time you get to Melbourne will be an advantage in Melbourne. So Scott, we'll put the second question to you. This is from Darren Donald. How do you think the grid order shapes up after the first test from front to back? Now, I'm I'm going to frame this as a this is a your kind of all data inputs considered for a kind of rough feel shall we say because gary's done his performance analysis which he did after the first test which we can will mention in a minute but just your basic it doesn't necessarily need to be one to ten but your basic map of where it might be very provisionally tentatively with lots of caveats because it's basically three days. whatever i say now is going to get clipped out and played back to me when i'm completely wrong in australia and then the rest of the season isn't it um yep well i think the first two, I think, is quite easy. Mercedes and then Red Bull. That's what I'd say based on what you've seen so far. Um, so am I doing it based on, do I have to take a punt on where I think the rest of it really shakes out or what I, what we've seen so far? I, th- this, I think this is where, all things considered, it probably should shake out. Okay. So, so this this is very... We're asking you to gaze into the crystal ball before the second test starts. So it was, this, this is very difficult. This is, a, this is a... I'm just... I'm screwed either way here, aren't I? Uh, the conservative in me is just going to have to go with Ferrari next, just because obviously we've not seen them anywhere. But on obviously, when Gary did his uh, analysis, uh, the that the sharp end of that midfield was looking really good, and I was reading some comments uh, from from Racing Point over the weekend as well. They seem to they seem to think that they've really unlocked their uh, quite a lot of potential from this uh, pink Mercedes Mercedes clone W10B, whatever you want to call it the RP20, to use his real name. So they they seem quite confident. So I think Ferrari in third, but I really don't think by very much. I think Racing Point, I don't really think there is that big gap between the two classes of, of F1 team at the moment. Um, and then the midfield is just a mess. Uh, so I think I think Racing Point is just ahead of it. And then I think Renault actually salvaged their test quite nicely by the end of it. So I think they're there as well. McLaren... Maybe McLaren depends on exactly how much they bring because they talked about having this basic car in week one and 
more development to come for on the MCL 35s. But I think Renault and then maybe McLaren. I'm just trying to remember all Al- of Alpha Tauri looking reasonably. That, that's they're probably the fourth team in the. I'd, I'd probably group those four teams as the four. That's interesting. The yeah. Top part of the midfield at, at this time because ha- exactly how that all that all shakes out is one of the things that's going to be really difficult to tell for even after the second week because of yeah, it's how going to close those midfield, well. midfield ones are. I mean, the only thing I would say that I'm quite fairly comfortable saying is I don't really see Alfa Romeo necessarily jumping towards the, um, the, the, the front of that group. Um, and I think the, when you go back as well, I think it's Williams and Haas then at the, at the very back, but exactly what order I'm not sure because Haas are basically they're being they're, they're trading on eggshells basically around the first week of testing because of how badly last year went yeah so I, I think I'd, I'd probably broadly agree with that but it's a big it's kind of a, a big a big mess in that, that midfield group I mean Gary you ran through your your adjusted pace rankings in the in the, in the last uh, test I'll, I'll quickly read those ones out just to remind everyone that went Mercedes Red Bull Racing Point Renault AlphaTauri McLaren Alfa Romeo Williams, Ferrari, Haas. Now, just to stress, that was purely based on crunching the numbers. You're not for a minute suggesting Ferrari are going to be ninth. So that that's what, what I asked Scott for was a kind of all inputs considered. Yours was a purely numbers-driven one based on very sketchy data, shall we say. Yes, it was very sketchy data. I mean, you know, we, we create these numbers because we can. Um, we can invent anything. It doesn't really matter. But these numbers that I, I did come from something. They come from the lap times that people did. Um, I know that Ferrari will be running more fuel in their car than Alfa Tori, for example. I'm pretty sure of that. So, yes, that will all change. If I look at some of the long runs where I think they fall into place, I think you're looking at Ferrari probably being about half a percent off um, the Mercedes. So it's knocking on the door with Red Bull, maybe a little bit slower, maybe a little bit faster. But I don't think they're as bad as as they show. But that that's just, again, that's just an, another, another guess. Um, so... I think the one we could say that we've seen the car performs very, very well is Mercedes. You know, without doubt, they are performing very well. The car that I see on the track that looks as though it performs very well, especially in the faster, medium speed and fast corners, is the Red Bull. Um, And the the racing point looks very good. Now, the racing point could be running lower fuel. They'd just be confusing themselves. I know those guys. Why should they do that sort of stuff? I don't know. You know, Renault have always... To be honest, they've always shown very well in testing and they've gone to the first race and it's sort of fallen apart a little bit on them. So I I think, you know, there's too many guesses. All we can do is come up with what we see and then take the numbers that are produced in front of us and see if we can jiggle it around with the tyres. If we find out anything about fuel loads, jiggle it around because of that. But if we don't, then you just have to say that they're all honest and they're all running about half tanks. That isn't true, but we don't know any better than that. So why should we say something better than that? Um... But I think, you know, I do think the midfield has closed up. That's a positive for everything because it means it changes the pressure in those top three. In the last last season, you know, the top three teams were able to go out on the harder tyre too easily in uh, in Q2. And and just a lap time, it got them on the top ten so they could get into Q1. Um, we don't want that to happen. We want to make sure that you have to be honest and that everybody is, is, is working with the same set of parameters because... You know that that'll change the pressure on the top three teams, which is what we want really. And, and when the pressure changes, um, sometimes you know you fall over a little bit. So we want racing. We want more cars there. So I'm pleased to see that the midfield will be closing that gap to the leaders, and that's the biggest thing I think to get better racing. 
Next question comes from Callum Daly, which is based on what we've seen from the first week of testing. Do you think this will be Mercedes' strongest season yet? Is the season already over? I think my answer to that is going to be, I don't think it's going to be their strongest season yet because look at 16 and 14, they were so, so well ahead. Um, just just walks. I don't think the season's already over. There's a, there's a very long way to go. But Mercedes does look pretty mighty at this stage. I think we can say there's a very good chance Mercedes will win it. But I also have to remind everyone, last season had some great races, a lot of really good races, even though Mercedes had it in the bag from early on. So it, although we all want a championship battle, it's not uh, only about that. And there's also a, a question related to Mercedes from Kevin Lee, which has given Mercedes created so much public and semi-open content regarding this this uh, version of WF. And will they bring many changes to it to make those videos and articles written about them? worthless scott i don't think that's going to change i just think mercedes are a team who are very uh that they know what they can be open with and they actually like to unlike half the teams that like to hide it away they actually like to tell the technical stories about formula one especially because a lot of what they're talking about as well is um, under the skin sort of the fundamental architecture of the car so it's not like they're suddenly giving away a secret that um, one of their rivals could just suddenly put in the wind tunnel or whatever and then try and develop in the next couple of weeks it's it's I would be amazed if that's some kind of insane bluff by Mercedes. It would be very out of character and it would be quite impractical as well. So I think what they're doing, as you say, is just there's just an element of honesty. There's a story to tell there and they're, they're quite happy to tell it. I'd say on that technical side, it's, it's interesting because we've got this, this ban on the screens in the, in the pit lane, which are in the, in the sporting regulations that you're not allowed to, to block it. But we have seen certain teams, Ferrari's been one of them, to uh, use people to block it, which... Uh, which I think is a little bit. I think that's a little bit against the uh, what the rules say. Actually, you can have a human screen; it's not needed for them to be there. They aren't the only ones doing it, but uh, uh, you know, this is it is a technical sport, Gary. And you've always put a lot of effort into, t- even when you're you were kind of active as a Formula One technical director. You're all often quoted in the press because you like to try and communicate these things to people. And teams should be doing this because we know how much everyone loves the technology and trying to understand even these incredibly complex cars. Well, you know, I think what people forget is that Formula One only exists because of the, the spectators, supporters, enthusiasts, all that stuff. So cutting them off is, is not really what it's all about. And it's one of the reasons I do the job I'm doing now is to try to bring bring to the public a little bit more information. You know, we're privileged to be here and going up and down the pit lane and looking at these things. So trying to bring that to the public is making more interest for the public. And if we get more interest from the public, then the teams will get a little bit more sponsorship maybe and so on. It's a spiral but they can cut their own throat very, very easily. I mean, you know, they they think they're in their, their own little glass house. I think each team's sitting in its own little glass house, and um, they just, you know, they try and protect themselves too much. So I'm glad to see these rules changing, so the cars are more on view because it's the cars that are the, the you know, they're the thing that we want to see. Yes, you know, the drivers are heroes, um, but but still, the t- cars and the technology involved in it is something that should be seen and should be understood. And it should be understood. And I think that seeing Mercedes, you know show their their DAS steering um, is is very good. You know, they've also got a rear suspension system on the, on the car that's quite complex. They're not frightened to talk about it. They're not going to tell you what any of this stuff really does as far as their um, concept is concerned. They're, you know, it's there. You can see it, and then it's up to you to work out what you can do. And that's that's what we try to do, is just bring that story across to the public to let them understand the, the whole thing a little bit better. Yeah, that's what Formula One needs to be uh, needs to be pushing. Scott, we've got a batch of questions on Ferrari. I'll try and lump some of them together. Uh, Akash Deep Singh says, "Do you believe Ferrari are really sandbagging? And what are your thoughts of Ferrari being the fastest in slow corners, according to Italian media?" Um, I haven't seen the Italian media reports, but obviously there's some suggestions that they're particularly good in slow corners. 
And Viandra Monishaf says, do you think Ferrari will bring the B-spec car like what Mercedes did last year? So sort of two Ferrari questions there, Scott, about their position and what we could expect to see from them. Okay, so first of all, yeah, they're obviously, they're definitely sandbagging because if this is Ferrari going out and doing qualifying runs last week and being that far off the base, the pace, then Matteo Benotto would already be out of his job. Point of order, I don't, I don't consider that sandbagging. That's just doing your own program because that's what you need to do right I, I always consider sandbagging to be deliberately hiding as that's your main priority okay ferrari are doing their job aren't they so they they are but they are also not running around they're also running with the the engines not on a on a high engine mode and stuff like that so they are there are but it's not just a case of they're going out and they're running the car completely normal but they're yeah. putting loads of fuel in it they are taking other measures to make sure that it's not it's not just all, can I, all, all the other teams have got GPS and can see it anyway, though. So yeah, but can I just ask a question there, Scott? How do you know that? Well, that's based on what the uh, what the teams are saying about because they've got their GPS data, and that's based on a sort of broad comparison from well, what Red Bull and Mercedes, which obviously they have an agenda against Ferrari, but they're saying that if you compare the GPS data from the Ferrari to the Ferrari customer teams, there's a they they estimate around sort of a second deficit on the straights, and obviously there are different car philosophies and stuff at at play there. But that is basically the um, what's the what's the best way to put it? The uh, the, the the paddock sort of assumption is so, that they're they're holding back. Sorry to jump in here, but so whenever Vettel was fastest on the Friday down the straight, three hundred and whatever it was, how did he do that? Oh, I'm not sure. In the same that, way, that was that, that was yeah, he did do that, and that was that was kind of an outlier from their general pattern because they were down the other the other days but it's the same as i think there was one day where was it grosjean or someone was like crazy slow like through the through the speed trap in one of the sectors or something like that so there's it's always there's always like the potential i guess for these anomalies in the data but to get back to the the, the main point there's obviously mo- much more performance to come from the ferrari than we've seen so far exactly where it will drop them in the competitive order is the big question i as I wrote on 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 the site on Friday evening, I do believe that Ferrari is in a spot of bother. I don't think it's just going to be a case of take the fuel out of the car, put the softest tyres on, and suddenly they're going to be quicker than Mercedes and quicker than quicker than everybody. I do think there is work to be done there, um, and I think there is pressure on them to actually make the most of that because linking in with what they said about what Mercedes did last year, and that, a big element of what Mercedes did last year was based on. A, a plan to have part of the concept there for the first week of testing and then bring the updates to the second week and then refine that further for Australia but that was because there was this regulation change predominantly on the on the on the front wing so they didn't they didn't want to do too much too soon basically and what Ferrari's done this year it's not quite the same because it's not like where if you look at Gary's technical analysis of the Ferrari, it's not like they've suddenly come up with this crazy new aerodynamic concept that they need to, to, to bed in or, or something like that. So there is no reason to expect them to have this sudden, massive, fundamental concept change on the car week to week or loads of bolt-on bits that suddenly tra- transform its performance. There are there are other factors that are, that mean that Ferrari's off the pace at the moment. It's not just because they need to bring a, a brand new front wing or bargeboard elements or something like that. Yeah, we'll likely see some new bits and pieces, but not a not a completely brand new uh, aero package, certainly. Uh, moving on, Toyn van Oudhuisden. Uh, that's my attempt at pronunciation anyway. Apologise to anyone whose name I, I get wrong. When you look at the long runs, the Red Bull seems to be behind Mercedes and even Ferrari. Do you think they're sandbagging, given the car looks so good on track? And what do you think they'll bring to the second test? Gary, Red Bull. Well, 
again, it's the same thing. Everybody will be bringing some stuff to the track for this test, and everybody will be bringing something to the track for for Melbourne. And it depends on on what of that stuff actually works, because it's never just quite as black and white as as just saying, okay, I've got two tenths of a second here. We'll bolt it on, and you find two tenths. It's, it always takes a re reset up of the car. You know, you normally have to just get the optimize everything. So, Mercedes last year um, brought stuff. It worked. They went to Melbourne and, and thrashed everybody. In reality, um, can other teams do the same thing? I think I think Mercedes are better at doing their homework than most of the teams are now. If you look part over the last few years, Ferrari have been, you know, very good at making a step on a Saturday. Um, or for a Saturday on a Friday night after they've done some running and they've done some simulation work back at base and then Saturday suddenly they were competitive where they weren't competitive on the Friday. Um, Mercedes have always come out and been competitive on the Friday and they've not really had a lot left for Saturday and that means they do their homework quite well back at back at base. So everybody's way of looking at all these developments is a bit different. Um, I think, as I said, you know, the Red Bull looks pretty good on the track. That doesn't mean you know that the lap time is there completely. Um, but when you look at it, it looks as though it does everything the driver wants. In the low-speed corners, it does have a bit of understeer, but you know they'll have a, had a you know, weekend to work on that now to try and optimise it a little bit. Um, I agree with you, the Red Bull race runs that we've seen so far are a bit slower, and you know it's actually quite a lot. It's probably three-tenths to, to half a second a lap, roughly, that the Red Bull's off the pace on, on the race run, and that means you know, at the end of the race, you end up 30 seconds or something behind what Hamilton did. I, we haven't got one from Ferrari that we can uh, analyse, but I don't see them, You know, from what I can sort of work out from the numbers I've seen, I don't see them challenging Mercedes for the, for the race, um, but I do them, see them knocking on the door with Red Bull. Just one quick thing I just want to throw in on Mercedes. Barcelona was Mercedes' best circuit last year is where they had their biggest advantage, which is just a piece of information that's worth bearing in mind. So this is a track where sometimes gaps get, get exaggerated. But if if just if you go back a few years as well, this used to be Red Bull. Whenever Red yeah. Bull were dominant, this was Red Bull's best track. And it, it is a track that's it's got a bit of everything. It's it's quite tricky because of the high-speed corners and the, and the low-speed corners, the way they are. All tracks are difficult. But this doesn't have a big straight to make up for lots of stuff. You know, you need a you need lots of downforce, um, and you need a pretty efficient downforce package. And when you got the car right, um, you know Barcelona, you get the reward definitely, and that's where Mercedes are at the moment. They've they've got a good car, and they're getting the reward from it. Inevitably, there's been lots of talk about the DAS system of Mercedes, the, the dual axle steering system. We've got a couple of questions here. The first from Gav F1, which is saying, is the Mercedes DAS system not a driver aid? Aren't the FI camping down on this? Well, the driver aid, because it's driver actuated, they'll consider that to be to be fine, it, although it, it doesn't actually alter the suspension, even though it does alter the, the, the toe position. So the argument and the FI's opinion currently seems to tally with this, although it can still be challenged by protest, is that because it's driver actuating it's not changing the suspension itself uh it's okay uh the second question gary from uh jamie penning which is saying is it really worth copying the das system given it's outlawed for 2020 should the other teams be focusing on other areas of the car rather than something that they could get gains from but they'll have to throw out in 2021 so yeah if you were running a team would you be trying to develop das assuming it is outlawed next year and what could sort of gains would it could you get and how long would it take you to to do it I'd definitely be looking at it to see what I thought it did do. Um, we did hear some rumours from uh, Pirelli that the tyre temperatures, whenever they were using it, the end of straight tyre temperature was like 30 degrees cooler on that inner shoulder. So, you know, that's a big benefit. Um, we got 
theoretically now we've got 21 races this year um, so it's in the races that it would really help what I've seen with the Mercedes thing and I've looked at it a few times since I got back is that it, the, the change on the front wheels I, th- I believe to looks visibly like it's more than just going from toe out to straight ahead it's going from a toe out to, to toe in now, if you do if you do that, you actually can create more um, temperature in the overall surface of the tire, but not but reduce the temperature on the inner shoulder, which is ideally what you want. Because going out to qualify with new tires, it's very difficult to get the temperature into the front tire, but you don't want to put it all into that inner shoulder because you overheat that area. So, you know, th- there's more to the to the DAS system than meets the eye. I definitely, as a team, be looking closely at it. I know well the. The Mercedes steering rack, their track rod that goes out from the chassis to the upright is um, in line with the bottom wishbone, forward leg of the bottom wishbone. So their steering column has a either a drop-down gear or a, a kink in it with a universal joint or something to get down there. The the car that could sort of do it quickest, I think, is probably um, the Ferrari. It's got a horizontal steer and their, their track rod is in line with the top front wishbone leg. So they would have an easier time doing it um, than, than most other teams. Uh, Red Bulls is in the middle of the two, so again, there's, you need to think about theirs a little bit and how they would achieve it. Um, if, it was, if, it was a, if it was a Ferrari sort of package, then I don't think you know a month would probably be a, a pretty good sort of time to look at it and think about it and, sign, and sort of recognise whether you wanted to do it, and then probably another month to carry it out. So a couple of months' time, you could have something that you could give a test run to see. And you don't you don't necessarily have to race it. You can just test it at one of the races on a Friday, and just see what the value really is on the track. It it has lots of changes. On the, we talked about the tire, the tire temperature, the um, you know having the toe out for turning into the corner and all that. But obviously, it does change the aerodynamics. So you need to look at that aerodynamic change first of all in the wind tunnel and see how that is beneficial. If if the toe in is better for the tire wake to give you uh, less drag and more straight line speed then you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's another good thing to have. So you need to analyse all these things before you make that decision. Yeah, there's a lot of factors at play. Uh, but yeah, so a couple of months, so maybe you could have it uh, for Spain or Monaco. Monaco would be much easier, but Montreal, it could be quite beneficial for if you get it, if you can get it there and understood and actually understand it well enough to use it in a, in a racing situation. Well, you know, I think as we've seen that the, the fact if you can build it structurally okay, which I don't think should be a problem to these guys now, that you see the reliability of the car, everything's tested, the loads are understood very well. So there's no problem, I think, in building a, a system that structurally will be okay. And you can make that system so you can you know, put it on the car and just lock it off if you don't want to use it. You know, just there has to be a way of just, you know, putting, sticking a bolt in the hole so you can't pull the steering column up and down. That's pretty simple. So there's no deficit from actually analysing the potential um, improvements from it and then putting something on the car to just double-check that it, it works on the track for you and gives you those improvements. And if it doesn't, just you know, just don't use it. So get yourself ready for when you get to races where it would be an advantage. If it does help with straight-line speed, then Montreal, yes. Yeah, and also, you know, you need to look at the circuits where the front tyres suffer, so... There's a lots of other tar- circuits, but yeah, first race in Europe, I would I'd be pushing to have something, as long as my analysis of it aerodynamically and mechanically said this would be a positive. So I would try to have it for the first race in Europe. Whether I used it there or not, I'd have it on the car. So on the Friday, you could do a little bit of running with it. Well, we'll have a very brief break and be back with some more questions after this. 
Well, we've got plenty of listener questions to get through. So, Scott Mitchell, we'll move on to the, the next one. I'll, I'll pair these two questions again. Uh, the first from Dan Kincaid, which is, is Racing Point really that fast? And does Ferrari have a higher chance of being behind a Racing Point than ahead of a Merck or a Red Bull as, as a result? And then there's also a question from Jonathan H2227, if that is his real name, uh, saying there have been suggestions Racing Point wouldn't be bringing any updates to the car in 2020 to focus on 21. And then, of course, the whole bigger question of how you shift your focus onto 21 and what happens if you're in a in a tight competition for the championship. So, Scott, Racing Point. So, if Racing Point has been able to to maximise its car concept this year, then we know that they we know what potential that has because they have tried to replicate what Mercedes did with with their car last year. So, the potential in theory is greater than if Racing Point, I guess, had persevered, persevered with their their troublesome concept before and don't really want to get bogged down in the the specifics of what they've done and, and, and why, but it's broadly that they've decided that um, if, you, if you can't beat them, join them uh, with the Mercedes. They've been trying to adopt a different kind of car philosophy around rear-end architecture that's designed around a different kind of car philosophy. So they're basically now they've got the resource, they've thrown their concept out the window and they've, they're, they're putting all their eggs in the Mercedes basket. So in theory, even though it's a year behind because it's the 2019 Mercedes, that car was very good a year ago. And then you obviously bring your evolutions to it, your kind of interpretations of different things. So they, you raise the potential of that car in theory, and therefore it should be a very competitive uh, package if they get the most out of it, because there's a lot for them to learn. They've had a very good start with it. I think they seem pretty happy. I would say that if Ferrari doesn't get its act together, we've seen how much they could fall away from Mercedes and Red Bull last year. There's every chance that Ferrari could get beaten by a, could get beaten by a racing point this season, depending on how much Racing Point maximises that package and how much Ferrari potentially drops the ball. When it comes to what Racing Point do with their package, this could be their limiting factor this season because the team has said that part of the reasoning for doing this is that they're hoping that they can hit the ground running properly. Bottom line is, for that team, the objective for this year is to be best of the rest, is to finish fourth in the Constructors' Championship. But they want to be closer to third place than they have been in the past to do that they don't need to be getting in a development race with ferrari red bull mercedes because they're going to lose that development war in, in in all likelihood so what they want to do is hit the ground running so basically what they start the season with they there are some i guess some early sensible upgrades early in the year but then they can turn their attention to 2021 sooner because they are a, a smaller team so they're moving on to the final part of that it's going to be a real mess if you find yourself in a tight battle for something during this season because there's a lot of money at stake depending on where you finish in the championship so you're not really going to want to take your eye off of 2020 especially if you're one of those big free teams fighting for the title but at the same time it's not just 2021 that's that's riding on getting that regulation change right because what happened when Mercedes, I know it's not the same because it's not the engines but when Mercedes nailed 2014 that set them up for a, a good few years and when they nailed 2017 as well set them up for, for, for 2018 and you just have that momentum you don't want to be going into this new era of regulations playing catch up I, d- I don't think anyway I my suspicion is that unless you've got the resources to just throw lots of money and manpower at both packages 2020 development and 2021 I just think surely people are going to be turning the taps off soon I've been mean, Gary what would you be doing if you were technical director of a team balancing up like this yeah, I mean, 2021's a big season, but getting there, the money to run the car or to 
to have the budget for 2021 means that 2020 needs to be, you know, as competitive as possible. There's a lot of money in the Constructors' Championship. You know, it's, it works out, I don't know, it's probably nine, ten million per position. So just as a nice guide. Uh, that's pretty, pretty important because, you know, for a small team like uh, Racing Point, or small, they're not small anymore, but for a lot of these teams, you know, that can be knocking on the door of uh, of 10% of their budget at least, and it can be all of the budget relative to what, you know, the car um, requires to, to build and to develop. So it's a very important thing. But, you know, if I was, I classify Mercedes, Red Bull, um, Ferrari and Renault as they should be works teams. They are, you know, theoretically they're coming from a, a constructor background as such. Red Bull are a little bit different, but, you know, they have a, a very, very wealthy um, owner. So you have to classify them in that group. Um, but for the other teams behind that, I would be a little bit disappointed in the situation with the with uh, the Force India because, you know, Alfa Romeo could build a Ferrari, you know, an identical idea of Ferrari. So could Haas, you know, Williams are, st- are a standalone team. McLaren are a standalone team. With a, both of them have a lot of past history that they want to still be their own team. So they're not going to do that now. You know, Racing Point have taken that, you know, taken that opportunity to build last year's winning car as such. That's very difficult to do. I, on many many occasions, I've tried to copy something in the wind tunnel by taking pictures and actually copying it in detail. It's very, very difficult to do. Let me assure you, you know, you don't just take a picture and go off and sketch someone up and somebody makes it and it works just as well. 99.9% of the time, anything you do like that, you put it in the wind tunnel and it's worse than what you've got. So it's a difficult thing to understand when you sign off a, a complete concept change like what uh, Racing Point have done. I think we have to wait to Melbourne to see what, how competitive they are. Um, but if they are competitive, I think you'll see some teams raising their ugly head and doing a bit of shouting about it because, you know, they have to. It's uh, it, it's just not the way to go about it. Now, if you want to bring it in and say, OK, those works teams could have a B team and, and basically you could use last year's car from any of the A team that you're associated with, then fine. But it's not like that now. You, you know, it's not like that at all. So there will be a few there will be a few uh, words said, I think, in, in some of the meetings that the, the team owners will be having. Yeah, there's definitely going to be a, a big talking point uh, over the course of the year, particularly uh, if uh, if Racing Point do do as well as uh, as might be expected. I personally would be very surprised if they could if they could beat beat Ferrari, but they're massively in the mix for the front of the midfield. It's a yeah, congested part of the uh, of the grid there. Uh, the next question: Do you expect any of the midfield teams to make a significant step towards the top three this season? That's from Mark Cuthbert. Scott, so that's the question of: Is that midfield chasm still going to be there? It's, well, the gap will still be there, but I think it's going to shrink slightly. And with again, sort of what Gary said, if if Racing Point do nail this, then maybe they're the best place ones to to make the step. Before it became clear exactly what Racing Point were trying to do, my money would have been on McLaren being the only team likely to 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 bridge that gap because Renault should, as Gary said, they are one of the few. They are an authentic works team, but they're not a particularly uh, what's the what's the polite way of putting it? They're not very well oiled as an organisation. They've, um, I think they've they they have underachieved, especially compared to their own their own targets. So that gap, I think, will get smaller. But I still don't think we're at the point unless Racing Point have really pulled it out of the bag with this like Mercedes Mark II. I still don't think we're at the point where there's going to be a, a merited podium for one of the non-big three teams. Not to say that 
Toro Rosso and McLaren didn't do a good job to get their podiums last year, but I mean, in the, in normal circumstances, without there being a, a crazy race or condition. Yeah, yeah, doing it on merit and outpacing people is uh, is is very challenging. But uh, yeah, that's going to be an interesting uh, subplot. Another question about the midfield, which is with the apparent Williams upturn in pace and the comparatively poor first test, should Haas be genuinely concerned about finishing last in the constructors' championship in 2020? That's from the brothers Hunt on 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 Twitter. Well, I did a a piece which was published uh, today on on the race.com that's the hyphen race.com if you want to have a look about what Haas was up to and obviously if you looked at the times slowest of all the teams they completed the least mileage we saw some Haas's off at uh, a different time so it looked from a, a distance like a pretty bad test and we certainly didn't see any real pace from that car but this is a team in a unusual position last year they had this aerodynamic problem which particularly afflicted them in in the lower and medium speed corners when they were getting losing downforce in the rear end things weren't quite working and it obviously the, the problem was multiplied in, in warmer conditions when they were working the rear tires harder because the car was moving around it was already hot so races like Bahrain they plummeted Spain pre-season and Australian Grand Prix they looked really good and they were right at the front of the mid-pack because the conditions weren't and the track configurations weren't against them so they need to know this problem isn't there they've spent basically the whole first test driving around doing huge amounts of aero data runs and analysis to try and make sure that they can't have the same problem. They think they haven't, but they're trying to make sure that they have got it right. They're confirming their their work, and the idea is having done that and gone over all the data, they can tick that box and then get on with performance running in this test. So we don't really know with Haas. We know when things work at Haas, that car can be very quick. That team can be very quick. Obviously, it's built around loads of 2020 Ferrari bits, unlike the Racing Point, which is largely 19 uh, bits from Mercedes it's using aside from the engine, and also Alfa Tauri that uses uh, 2019 Red Bull bits and pieces. So, yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see how Haas do in this test. Well, I'm going to risk handing over to Scott Mitchell for some Scott's people, unless, uh, unless there's any other pressing matters of testing we want to raise. But uh, No, this is the only reason people listen to the podcast now, Ed. I know, I know. Gary's quite a fan of Scott's people, and he's but that's, just... because, but that's because we've done, we've taken, we've gone to great lengths to include Gary in this. But actually, no, I'm, I'm completely lying. People just love Gary and cars that you've been involved with. So every time I've done one of these now, the last three times, there has been whatever the question's been, there has been one answer. So, someone at some point mentions you or one of your cars, and that's happened again today. So the question that I asked was. What um, if you could own any F1 car from history? What would it be? And I had a really healthy number of replies, including at least five or six people putting their hands up to own a Jordan, which I thought was was quite sweet. Unsurprisingly, the Jordan One Nine One would cropped up a couple of times because that's that's very popular. I don't know. I don't know if I can count this because um, Wicker Bill says that it's uh, the first F1 car I saw in person was, uh, th- I'm pretty sure it's a 194, it raced in Euroboss, um, with completely the wrong, li- like, yellow livery, but does that count, Gary? Does does that count as owning a Jordan 194 if you own that and then you've changed the colours and it goes and does something else? Um, I mean, everything has to be adapted to suit everything else, but it's nice to see it keeping running. Um, I don't think the colour matters, That's only, that only comes out of a and a paint from Halford or somewhere. So, you know, I think the, the car itself underneath that is, is pretty pretty much there. I, d- I doubt if it would have a Peugeot engine in it, 
because uh, a heart engine, sorry, because you know they were limited. The Judd V10 apparently. Yeah. Is in that, so so. Uh, you have to adapt a lot of these things, but the, the thing still underneath it is is the car. Um, you know, I think I don't possess any, but of the three of the Jordans that we built, I think the 191, the 194, and the 197 were probably the three Jordans that were sort of closest to my heart, and I would classify them as, you know, I had more input to them than any other car, any of the other cars, and mainly because of just changing direction with with engine manufacturers and stuff all the time. You know, my time was taken up trying to get relationships built with different engine manufacturers. So you suddenly lose a bit of time because of that sort of stuff um, because you can't be there at the factory all the time. You can't focus on the car. You, you have to focus on a lot of other stuff. When we had the stable sort of engine manufacturer, then those three cars I could focus on the chassis rather than trying to build relationships with with somebody new. So they're my. They, if I had if I had a choice of all the Jordans, it'd be a one nine one, the one nine four, and the one nine seven. Well, Dave England agrees with you on the one nine one. He wants a one nine one as well. We had a couple of uh, we covered a couple of shouts for the for the Jordan one nine eight as well. Um, it seems that there's a few Damon Hill fans out there. Um, I was quite surprised, actually, at the number of modern F1 cars that were on the list, which I wouldn't personally necessarily go for, but I quite like it because it shows that these cars do still resonate with people because that's the big thing for me. I fear that sometimes it feels like F1's losing that. You don't look at the modern-day Red Bull with the same affection that when people see a McLaren MP44, and the MP44, unsurprisingly, was on on the list. Francesco uh, Zagani, apologies if, like Ed, I'm butchering the pronunciation of your name, but he picked the MP44. But of the modern cars, uh, we had a, I think we had three different people: uh, Paul Meany, uh, M, uh, at MJ Riskman, and our very own Luke Hinsel all suggested Sebastian Vettel era Red Bulls, uh, the RB7 in particular. Um, Paul Meany, Paul Meany said he'd want that just because the sound of the exhaust blown diffuser. So I think I guess that he obviously fancies himself, or he put it in the hands of someone else and take it on a track day so he could hear it. Um, McLaren MP4 23 on the list that was from Arod McLaughlin uh, F1 Statster said the launch spec STR12 the 2017 Toro Rosso when obviously we had the new look aero for the first time on track and that was obviously when they introduced the the, the, the blue, red and silver livery which uh, F1 Statster says I think it's the prettiest F1 car of the 21st century brackets maybe ever and well, we've got the design of the 191 in the room, so I'm not entirely sure. Uh, I'm not entirely sure that stands. A few of the uh, more sort of traditional, older options: Jamie McPherson, Brad- Brabham fan car, uh, Mike. I don't uh, at N Tufnell 27 got to be the Ferrari 412 T2. Lots of shouts for Williams. Unsurprisingly, the 1990s Williams in in particular. Spencer Murphy FW14B, Phil Dickens FW17, our very own Glenn Freeman. He's disappointed me. He's the editor-in-chief at the race. And obviously, he's picked the FW14B. He said he saw one at a World Series by Renault event at Paul Ricard, sat in an empty garage, not getting any love. And he regrets not getting in it to get comfortable. But he also included the 191 on his list. But it was only in third place. So it was behind the Williams. It was behind the Ferrari 641. The 191 third place Gary he says don't let don't tell Gary Anderson his car only gets the bronze medal but I have let it slip now what's your message to Glenn I'm surprised with Glenn that he didn't pick the Andrea Moda 
you know, that just shows how much he knows about motorsport. Exactly, and the fact that he's a Jacques Villeneuve fan as well says uh, everything you need to know about uh, Glenn Freeman. There's lots more. I, this is, I think this is the question that I got the most responses to, and it was brilliant because you had people was bringing back memories for different things and people were sending in photos. So one, the one last one I will mention because we had two shouts for... Um, we had two shouts for a 67 Eagle Mark 1. Very, very lovely. Alex Hunt suggested that. And at only one David, who did say he'd, he'd cry having to choose between an MP44 and the 67 Eagle. And followed that up by saying he got to help an owner push, it, push the Eagle out of a garage at Watkins Glen, a historics race or a historics event. He said he got goosebumps and a little choked up about it. And that's what I love about this, because I it's just a, I, I like it because it's just a little reminder of how much car, like cars and like the sport actually means to people. Because it gets... Being in F1 now, especially in the paddock, it's so corporate and it's so unemotional at times. So it's nice just to, first of all, to get the memories of the people who remember cars of a certain year. But then, as I said to see a few people suggesting more modern-day cars. It's just quite nice to know that, actually, uh, people still do care about this. And maybe some of the cars we take for granted now, in 10, 15 years' time, people will look back on quite fondly. Oh, well, people always complain at any given time about the current <laughs> cars. It's just the way it is. Oh, just, oh, sorry about this. I thought you were just saying in general. No, people complain People about, are just miserable. Yeah, well, there's a bit of that as well, and people certainly complain about Scott's people. But yes, oh, uh, that's not true. The, these, but, these, cars have, these cars have a special place in people's hearts. And you just reminded me, if you do have any more cars to suggest cars that you'd like to own or any of the other topics we've talked about so far animal mascots at at racetracks hopefully ones that are there safely locked away can't get on on the track or get gunned down in buenos aires which i think was gary's contribution to that particular episode um and any random places you've spotted drivers anything like this just you know send us a send us a message i'm uh, at at s mitchell f1 on twitter or you can send it to at we are the race on your social media platform of choice i just like i'd like to have a jordan 192 and then every now and again i'll just trailer it and park it on gary's drive just to remember a, an awkward yamaha ruined year <laughs> yeah i think if i was going back and you know not looking at cars that i was involved with or designed not i was involved um but the you know the lotus grand effect car lotus 78 and the Brabham fan car would be you know two of the cars that i'd say were they they broke new ground, I suppose is the best way of putting it, as far as the whole package con- concept, everything was concerned. And, it, you know, it definitely was... It'd uh, be nice to have them in the garage. Yes. You'd have an Eiffeland, wouldn't you, Ed? Well, I like the Eiffelands. Uh, I think it was the E21 the Eiffeland was called. I, I do like that one. And March 881's another one, the 88 March, which is a newy design, which is a sort of seminal car aero-wise. I actually argue that's a more important car than the MP44 of 1988. In of course terms you of, do. Of in course. terms of the long-term... Aero progression, should we say? The, the eight eight one was was the shape of things to come. The four four MP four four was a stunningly good car and brilliantly effective. But just in terms of its place in the progression, technically, the the eight eight one is uh, it, it's the car then for me. But anyway, otherwise, I'll, I'll end up just keep talking on. So I'll uh, I'll stop uh, talking about old F one cars for now. All I'll all I'll add is my, mine would be a fairly modern one as well. I'd go for the, an O four BAR just because that era of car seeing those qualifying laps around especially like the 04 time I just thought that was it was always so cool seeing them on the limit and uh, Jensen Button when he was especially when he was driving in 03 and 04 it's the first time but when I was a kid in karting it's the first time I've ever sort of got behind a driver so it's a sort of car that to me makes me think of a really really cool era of F1 and it sort of means a little bit more personally as well because there was just that link from a from a driving point of view so I would go a little bit more modern. 
Yep, a, a fair choice. Well, we're hopefully going to see some future classics lapping in Barcelona over the next few days. We'll be bringing you daily podcasts and all sorts of in-depth coverage on therace.com. And don't forget the hyphen if you want to head there and on our YouTube channel. So we'll be running around the paddock. Gary will be poking around in the garages, making nuisance of himself and uh, revealing some of the secrets of the car. So, uh, yeah, please do subscribe to this podcast. Make sure you keep up with, with goings on and we will be here for you every day. (laughs) 